Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest has a natural desire to leave the world in a much better condition than he found it. And he inspires people with an optimistic attitude to care for others. He prepares for conversations by collecting lots of background information to ensure he interacts from an informed position. So hopefully he did a little background check on me. We'll see what he came up with. With an upbeat perspective to life, he regards education as one of the essential elements of a well-lived life. And I know he means this in a broad sense, but also formal education. He has a master's in business administration and always like to see and talk to people who have that education and that desire to always be learning. He started that with a career in the U.S. Air Force. He's a U.S. Air Force veteran, so a fellow veteran. And I always love that. And he's a keynote speaker on business principles with practical ideas that inspire people to take action. He's often invited by organizations to speak on a wide range of leadership topics geared towards helping people and companies reach their full potential. A strategic thinker and planner who has developed the pivot planning framework that engages organizations to be more progressive and to plan and execute for success. He has experience in industries such as software development, health information systems, legal information systems, professional services, oil and gas nonprofits, and public education. That's a lot of experience that we want to hear about today from our guest, Charles Pulliam. How are you doing, Charles? I am doing outstanding today, Gary. How are you? I'm excited. And, you know, let's start a little differently today because I like to start with our veterans. And you decided to go in the Air Force. And, uh, you know, I was in the Army and my family was in the Navy. So thank you for your service. But why the Air Force, dude? I mean, (laughs) you know. Yeah, well, so interestingly enough, my my Marine buddies tell me, though, I was in integrated avionics. My Marine friends say you weren't really in the military because I was in the Air Force. So uh, that's an ongoing joke. Charles, people need to know the Marines say that about all the services. If you're not a Marine, you're not in the service. That's right. And of course, we're not going to say anything to them about it. No, absolutely. uh, So, yeah, the Air Force. And so my step-grandfather was a member of the United States Air Force, and his son was also a member of the United States Air Force. So that's what got me interested. What was the linchpin is that I had a counselor tell me in high school that I was not college material. And so I should go and get a job at the at a factory down the street or a gas station that was nearby. I didn't want to do that. And as a matter of fact, I had been taking electronic classes at the University of Missouri. I went to high school in Missouri. I'd been taking electronics classes because I thought I wanted to be an electronics engineer. Went in, took the ASVAP. Aced, I missed two actually on the electronics and math portion of the test. They said you can have any job you want in the Air Force. And that's how I got into integrated avionics. And then the final linchpin was I was sitting in the office there with my father. 
a guy walked in. Uh, he says, hey, to the recruiter, hey, I want to join the Air Force. And the guy looks up and says, hey, do you have a high school diploma? The guy says, no. And forgive me, Gary. He says, the Army's right down the hall. And so all of that stuff, all of that stuff combined, really got me to go into the Air Force. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'll I'll take the rib. Uh, I was in the seventies, and uh, there were a few. Uh, you know, although I worked in missile maintenance repair and electronics, so like you, yes. I was it, it, working with soldiers that were of the highest education level, and yes. it was a real pleasure working with those soldiers as opposed yes. to working with the infantry. Right. But hey, you know, everybody serves at their level and what they what they feel is best for them. At the end of the day, the combination of our armed forces is unprecedented and unmatched. And at the end of the day, we're all in it together and we support one another at various levels. And we're very good at what we do as a country and as a military. So I'm very proud to have served alongside everyone that's in the military. You know, and I'm glad you said that because we we do joke and it is a joke uh, to us at our levels that it doesn't matter whether it was the Air Force, the Marines, the Navy, the Army, the Coast Guard. I mean, everybody Air Force serves and they serve their country as best they can. And we want to thank all of our fellow veterans for doing so. Amen to that, my friend. So we talk about, you know, one of the things that in, in and I don't want to get into politics today. I'll use it as an example is we create this division based on the service that we're in. Now, what service are we in? I was in the Army. I was in the Air Force. You know, the Marines, you were not really in the military, you know, so there, there's this ribbing going on, but it really is out of fun. But there's there's a division quite often in a lot of things that we consider in leadership and organizations in our country today. And when people ask me where I'm from, Charles, I always give the same answer. I'm from America. Hmm. And yet most people will say the state they're from, sure, which creates another division in us. And I think division and diversity have the same root word. Mm -hmm. And one of your areas of expertise and the things that you try to do to try to make organizations better is this broad sense and understanding of diversity. And my good friend, Rupert Nikos, Dr. Rupert Nikos, who's a professor at NC State, did the same and educated me a lot in the last uh, 10 or 15 years about diversity as an idea, a diversity as, as a broad concept of thinking mm-hmm. and, and rather than it just being racial or ethnic or, or stay, I'm from North Carolina and you're from Virginia, wherever you might be from, there's not a separation, but there's diversity in all this. What are your thoughts on that in business in your, in, in the work that you're doing with pivot planning, with leadership, uh, you know, how do you bring that into these organizations to get a broader thought base on this? Thank you so much uh, for your question about that. You know, I discovered something. I'm going to go back to the Air Force real quick. I discovered something when I was in the Air Force and stationed over in Germany that for the first time in my life, I was not seen as a a black man or uh, African-American, however you want to label it. For the first time, I was just seen as an American. I remember walking out into the economy for the first time and getting asked the question by, by locals, are you an American? And I proudly said, yes. And they, well, come on over here. Let's have a beer. 
you know, and they began to teach me the language. They invited me to their houses for meals, introduced me to their families. They did not really care about anything other than the national origin. And so I'm probably going to adopt what you just said in terms of the next time someone asks me where I'm from, I'm probably going to default to America because that is ultimately what I'm most proud of. And anywhere I go in this country, it is absolutely one of the best places on the planet to live. Yeah, and I will, I'm just going to add to that because I yes. say I want to. I want other people to take this on and say we're from America yes. because if we all say that we're Americans, then we'll stop this division of right. all of these other things that right. says let's try to figure out what's best for America. And yeah, we'll argue over it. We'll have conflict and we'll compromise and we'll figure it out. But let's figure it out for all of America. Right. Not just for local local groups or a special uh, uh, set of people or whatever it might be, but That's all, right. all of all for America. I love it. And Gary, before we get off of our, our discussion today, I do want to tell you of an idea that I have that could end racism immediately. And oh. uh, so I will. That's a little teaser there. And hopefully we get a chance to talk about it. But I'll go back to your original question about diversity. And we, we broaden the subject in our company, diversity, equity, inclusion and access. And basically what all of those things combine to do is they give all people equitable opportunity for all things in America first. And then our concerns might go beyond the the United States. But as it stands, we care most about what's going on in the United States as a starting point. And then generally what happens in the world is the world generally follows uh, many of the things that the United States does. And so basically what, what what I believe, Gary, is we have to start first by honest dialogue and what we call intellection in our organization, meaning coming from a position of understanding as opposed to mere guess work. And so we are we are weary of, of the conversation about the fact that everyone has biases as the mainstay for diversity, equity, and inclusion discussions. We want to help our clients and the people that we come into contact with understand that there is a quantifiable value in having diversity, equity, inclusion, and access. And basically what it comes down to is your bottom line. You know, it, it is the average cost to replace a, a professional level person ranges from forty thousand up to as much as a hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, depending on the level of that person. And so, if you're able to include more people in the discussion and engage them in who you are as a company, then that engagement leads to retention, and retention leads to a better bottom line. But Gary, about that honest dialogue, we have to ask ourselves first: What are we talking about? as it relates to diversity. And, and understand that when I say diversity, I'm talking about all four factors that I mentioned earlier. What are we talking about? Is it merely aesthetics? You know, are, are we saying that that our company does not look like the community in which we work or the, or the companies we serve or whatever the case may be? And, and Gary, if that's the answer, that's an okay answer. I just need to know that up front. What's happening right now is people are afraid to say that. Mm. We just want to look better to the world. We want to look like we have a diverse group of people. Now, that's got to be the starting point, but it also can't be the ending point. We cannot stop at just aesthetics because we don't truly have diversity if we only stop at the way people look. You know, I once wrote a paper in college called Skin Has No Brain. 
Mm. And basically the point was, is that you cannot judge based on the way I look, how I think, behave, and will respond to various things in the world. But we make that assumption a lot of times. And Gary, if you and I, I'm going to go out on a a limb and say, we may share the same political values. We may be in approximately the same socioeconomic status. We may have some of the same ideals and beliefs about things in society. We're military men, uh, all of that. If we walk into a room in most corporations, Gary, and say that we're part of a team, people might make the mistake and say, oh, they've got some diversity. Well, no, we, no, we don't. <laughs> we're going to use the same filters and come up with this, to the same conclusions as, as as two men that look like you or two men that look like me that have the same beliefs. And right. so we just have to make sure that we do not end the discussion on aesthetics alone. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's there's all kinds of studies that are going on. I'll give you one for example that they do nowadays when they interview for a new position in an orchestra. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. They have the person yes. play, but they don't, yes. they don't see the person. Yes. So there's no bias towards whether it's a man or a woman, yes. uh, what color of skin they have, whether yes. they're, they have a, some kind of a handicap, a physical handicap or, or, or struggle. None of that's there. Yes. And I, and I think, you know, there ought to be some ways that we could do that, like interviewing people for jobs. It'd be, yes. it'd be the same kind of thing. One of the things I want to want to mention here, and I've said this to people before, that even if you don't take a broad view of diversity, if, if it's more myopic, if it is race, color, you know, these kinds of ethnicity, background, religious proclivity, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. if, if you're excluding those groups, you're excluding this talent. Right. You're just ex- just out of right. out of ignorance. You're excluding right. all this talent, all this possibility. And I tell people, if you don't have a variety of different diversity, and you you know you describe it as you know equity, inclusion, access, diversity as, as a whole, mm-hmm. but give people access to your culture if you really believe in it. Give give people include get people to be included in this because it's it's more than you can become more part of the community if you want to be part of the community. Otherwise, you're just denying it and you're lying to yourself. Absolutely, Gary. And, and we talk to our clients a lot about about this issue when we're working on the quantifiable value of diversity. And we also talk to them about things like if you want to make diversity, equity, inclusion, and access more than a sidebar within your organization, then you're going to involve some different types of people in it. So what happens in most major corporations right now, they might prop up a diversity, equity, and inclusion department. They're going to hire a diversity person. That person most likely is going to be an African-American woman. They may secondly be some other woman of color. Uh, Then it moves into African-American male, some other male of color. And then, you know, from, from there, then maybe various types of backgrounds or beliefs. The problem is, is it excludes the person or the people that most people that address this subject believe are in the majority, meaning they don't take the blue chip white male coming from Harvard with an MBA and put him in responsible for diversity, equity, inclusion, and access. And that is a mistake. Until people like that have this as part of upward mobility, it's not going to matter. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because they're focused on careers. They're focused on upward mobility. They're focused on moving into leadership. Now, some people ask me in that, well, how can I expect a non-marginalized person uh, to understand the plight of a marginalized person? I don't. 
What I expect is that blue chip person to do the things that makes that person blue chip, meaning that they're going to investigate, research, learn. They're going to play to their strengths and hire to their weaknesses or team up to their weaknesses. And basically what's going to happen is if you put a person like that, first of all, they're rarely at the table when we're talking about diversity. You've got a room full of people that are, are identified as marginalized for some reason in a room together working on this issue, largely excluding that that one person that might be white male, middle-aged white male. And so that's not diversity. If that person can't be at the table, that's not diversity. But then once you put that person in the room and that person starts to build relationships with people from diverse backgrounds, as that person moves up and everyone else on the team or that's involved moves up, what are they going to do when it's time to hire people and promote people? They're going to hire people that they know, love, and trust. And if who they know, love, and trust is a diverse group of people, their teams are going to be diverse in the process. And so, and, and that's not a bad thing. That's just how it works. We all do it. We all do it. And, yes. and, and, and it's based on our experiences, but what you're talking about is getting a higher level of awareness. And this is it's at the fundamental core of what we teach in leadership is awareness. Yes. That's right. It's not whether I have prejudices or not, because I have prejudices. It's being aware of them and not allowing those prejudices to determine my decisions. That's discrimination. That's right. That's right. And I also, I'll also step up and say one other thing for those people that don't know, because I haven't said that I'm a white guy. Okay, mm-hmm. I am, and and I can remember Procter and Gamble, who was very progressive about this when I went to work for them in 1980. 45% of the supervisors and managers in a manufacturing plant in Green Bay, Wisconsin, were women. Mm-hmm. And, and people of color, mm-hmm. okay, 45%. When I went to work at Scott Paper Company, out of 300 supervisors in that plant, there was one woman supervisor, one. Okay, wow. so P&G was, was way ahead of the curve on this, so they just, yeah. they just believed in it, and they knew it was the right thing to do. And even back then, I had a division manager who was African-American and learned a lot from him. But I had a peer. Here's here's the woman I learned the most from, this African-American, 50-year-old English major working in manufacturing. And here's what she taught me, Charles. At the time, we were talking about the EEOC laws, the new EEOC laws and diversity and the fact that we were using, always using the he gender pronoun. For everything that we said, we never mm-hmm. said she, there wasn't that balance and things. And they were working on that. And what this woman taught me was this. She said, you know, I can stand up and hold people accountable and I will be seen as a female African-American as just another militant getting up, mm-hmm. trying to espouse my concerns for the world. Right. And she said to me, but if you do it, they will hear your voice. Mm-hmm. Because you don't really have any skin in the game, so to speak. You, you, you just go ahead and do it. Right. And I was like, okay, uh, Charles, I, I, <laughs> I did this at a meeting once with about 40 people in it. This executive was up there and we were, we were encouraged to point out these deficiencies. And I pointed it out to this executive and you would have thought – First of all, he goes into defense. Well, I, you know, when I say he, I mean everybody. And, you know, right. first defensive, the, the room exploded. It exploded with one, one half of the people saying, 
well done, Gary. And the other half going, you need to shut up. You know, right. it's not a big deal, <laughs> right. you know? And I just kind of sat down. I, 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 I turned to this woman and I went, well, there we go. I guess you're right. <laughs> you know? It made an impact. I don't know exactly if it was a positive impact or not, but it made an impact. So well, ultimately Gary, you can't, you know, the only thing you can't do anything about is something you don't know. And so I love it that that yes. company encouraged people to get the cards on the table and then address it. And I've also had to deal with that issue of my skin, determining how people thought my behaviors would be most recently on the golf course last week. I was on a par three. I hit the ball. There was a group on the green, but they were walking directly off the green. And so I got up and I addressed the ball. And them, you know, I anticipated them being off the green, but they stopped and started having a conversation for some strange reason. And I didn't see that till the ball was in the air. And so, you know, the ball got close. I'm yelling for or whatever. Then the guy started chirping back at me. You know, what are you doing? Hitting any of us, all that stuff, you know? And I'm like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I'm just, right. But the wind's blowing and they can't hear me. So I walk on this par three about 120 yards and I'm walking to go talk to him. This guy starts looking around like he's panicking and he, and, and his buddy gets his phone out and starts recording. Yeah. And when I got up there, He's like, is there a problem? Is there a problem? And I was like, sir, <laughs> I was just simply trying to apologize for you. And, and you couldn't hear me from back there. So I wanted to come up and say, I didn't mean to do that. I apologize. But their expectation when they saw me coming up, that it was going to be fisticuffs. Right. And there was there's so many times in my career where I've had people in a meeting where I would assert an idea and have a boss say, Charles, that's very aggressive. Whereas I would be sitting next to someone that didn't look like me that would express an idea harshly. I mean, <laughs> really harshly. And they go, oh, that's good. Think that's good. That's I'd good like that direct response, right? And so to, to your former boss's uh, point, uh, that things happen. You know, I don't, I don't, those things happen. I don't wallow in that type of thing, but it does happen. And so those are ideas and thoughts that we can help people get rid of over time by showing them a different narrative. Most of them just simply don't know a different narrative. And if we open their eyes and they'll be able to behave differently. Yeah. And, and I, I like your example talking about the golf course, because what is missed here, if people don't realize it, is the awareness in the moment of the environment, what you saw people doing, what their expression was. And you probably realized by doing that, how you had to soften your voice and make sure, look, I'm no threat. I'm I'm just here to apologize. I want to make sure that, you know, uh, you couldn't hear me from back there and I'm really sorry. And, and everything was fine. They're like, Oh, okay. Okay. And, you know, to your point, you know, when you talk about the way people see us and expect certain behaviors out of us in certain ways, when you describe that, wow, that was awfully aggressive, Charles. This happens to women every yes. single day. Oh, yes, that's right. Okay. That's right. And I, you know, I won't call them a bitch because I'm on a podcast, so I wouldn't sure. want to use that word, right? Right. But that's, they get labeled that because they're, right. they, they state something strongly. And it's just, it's, it's so unfair. I mean, but that's the, that's what happens. Right. And for leaders, why are we talking about this stuff? Charles, why are we talking about equity, inclusion, access, diversity, uh, engagement, talking, confrontation, all the why? Because leaders have to role model what they expect people to do in those situations. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, something we talk about in our company, Gary, a lot is is in leadership development. You know, uh, you should, in our opinion, spend less time focused 
on becoming a great leader and more times focused on following the right leadership principles. And so the way to get to become a great leader is to understand the best people philosophies, the best things to follow in life and in leadership, follow them well, set that example. And so others behind you can also develop leadership through following you. Right. And so at the end of the day, we want to discourage people from from just the, you know, say, hey, I'm going to become a great leader, become a great follower of the right things and, and leadership will come. Mm. Yeah, I've I've heard that uh, that philosophy often. Mm-hmm. Where if you want to be a great leader, be a great follower first. Yes, yeah. yes, and not just of anyone. I'm talking about the right and the best things. How should I best treat people in an equitable manner? How should I best treat people? Ensure that I have diversity and inclusion in my projects or within my company. What philosophies and what principles do I need to endear to me in order to do that well and to become a great leader? That's that's the type of thinking that we try to encourage people to do. That we do encourage people to do. Yeah, so I want to I reinforce this broader concept, uh, yes. equity, inclusion, access, because yes. these, these words start to add more depth, breadth, yes. and understanding of what we mean by diversity. And, you know, when I look at inclusion, you know, mm-hmm. what that means, equity, you know, that, yeah, gosh, you know, the Declaration of Independence, right? All men right. are created equal, right? right? Uh, and women, you know, we, right. we, you know, that's just the way they wrote the document back then. Just like right. that's not kind of sad. <laughs> but all people are created equal, right? Yes. And and the thing about this is that we're given the opportunity. We're not given whatever we want. We're given the opportunity. That's right. As leaders, we want to be cognizant of the opportunities within our organizations that we can offer anybody. Because you see, if somebody looked at you, I'm going to get personal here because Mm -hmm. Charles, I mean, an expert said you are not college material. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And if that's the way you're viewed and you accepted that at the time, it's like, where would you be today? That's right. It would have been catastrophic, most likely. And so many kids are because of some judgment that an authority figure makes based on whatever their position is at the moment. Right. But you're not college material. Well, you overcame that. I did. I only made two B's and two degrees. So Somebody said you're not college material. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> I oh picked college up and I slammed it to the ground. <laughs> you know, for you. it was a big mic drop, but I'm, I'm happy. And I can thank the Air Force for that, Gary. Did the Air Force help you overcome any doubts that you had? Is that what happened? There's no doubt, uh, Gary. First of all, learning various leadership principles, been giving real, give, being given real authority and real responsibility for a, a real need in America uh, was a big deal. And when I got out of the military, uh, Gary, I, I, I found that I looked around at some of my peers who felt like uh, that they were stressed out, overworked or whatever. And I'm like, really? This is hard. Guys, we can get all this stuff you're saying is going to take 60 days. I can have that done by noon and we'll be moving on to the next. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, that's an extreme uh, uh, way to say it. But that's that's I felt like I was running circles around them. And so that let me know that I, I could uh, do something positive. But what made me go back to college, Gary, and I didn't do that until I was 40. I was the executive vice president of a large oil and gas company of, of human resources. I get a, they were headquartered overseas. 
This is a super hierarchical company. I'm talking about if you've got a VP title, people basically bow down as you walk by them in the hallway, right? And so I get a call from the headquarters and it's marketing and they're saying, hey, Mr. Pullen, I'm so happy you're in. You've joined the company. We just noticed that you left off your work. We're going to do a press release about you joining the company. And we noticed that you left your alma mater off all of your paperwork. We don't know. And I gave the spiel I gave to Houston. Everybody knew that I was non-degreed and a military veteran and so on and so forth. They're one of the most sought off, sought uh, after in HR in the, in the city. And so I went through the whole spiel and this lady on the phone goes, Oh, and just hangs up the phone. Yeah. And I was like, wow. So I went directly home. I went and told my wife, I was like, babe, I think I've reached a point in my career to which not having a degree might be a hindrance to me continuing to go forward. She was like, do what you have to do. And so I went back and got my undergraduate and then later had another a company pay for my master's degree. And again, was very successful in college. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we're often more successful in college than we go later. You know, we, uh, absolutely. You know how to use this stuff, right? I was like in class, like, oh man, when I get to work tomorrow, I'm going to implement this. You know, yeah. so it was great. Well, to your point, when people say they're stressed out, to me, I go, I was in the army. Nobody's shooting at me right now. That's, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good. exactly. Yeah. Hey, Gary, do you mind if I make a, a point or two? You talked about the inclusion and in, 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 in equity. The inclusion piece, you know, the way we frame that to a lot of our, our clients, Gary, is that involve people in the decisions that impact them. Mm-hmm. Right. So all the various types of people within the organization that might be impacted by the decision that you're making should be included in the decision making process. Right. And that's that's inclusion. The equity piece is giving people what they need in order to give them equal footing within the environment. And so the example is this. It used to be that when looking for a chief executive officer for any major corporation, one of the key things that was that was uh, a decision point was experience in that seat. Well, the the problem with that in in the 80s was that up until 1987, there were no chief executive officers that were of color in the United States of America, especially of any Fortune 500 company. And so if you use that criteria of experience, well, then that automatically eliminates every single candidate that you would get of color. Uh, And it was the 70s, I think, for women when they got to that seat. And so they had to make a shift. And thankfully so, or else I would never have achieved some of the things I did make a shift. say, okay, what are the attributes that we're looking for in the person that sits in the seat? And let's focus more on that than actual experience. And a lot of that was driven by the work being done around civil rights and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So to your point, and and I work with organizations about this all the time around promotions and stuff, only 30 percent of the population have the basic talents to be in a leadership position. Everybody can learn leadership skills. Right. But only 30 percent should ever be promoted into a leadership position because they, they need these natural talents, these socialized talents, these learned talents to be in a leadership position. And to your point on experience, experience is a horrible criteria for determining whether to promote somebody because that's it. They did well in that job. That's right. It's only history. It's history. It has nothing to do with their capability to lead and manage in a new position when they've been a salesperson or a technologist or something in an individual contributor's role. So you made a comment earlier. I don't want to miss it. You said, I have a way of getting rid of racism. 
Yes. I think that that this is something that we need to hear about, Charles. Okay. All right. And yeah, I'll just I'll just tell you and I'll I'll start by asking you a couple of questions. Gary, if I would have asked you two years ago, if I would have told you I could have made one single announcement to stop people from shaking hands with one another, what would you have said? And especially in the state of Texas, that's just that's the thing, right? People shake hands. If I would have asked you or told you two years ago that I could make one single announcement to stop people from visiting their elderly parents in the nursing home or from hugging their grandkids ever, what would you have said to me, Gary? I just said you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. You're not going to stop me from hugging my 92-year-old mother. That's exactly right. That happened. That happened with COVID. Why did it happen? Gary, it happened because people decided. Mm. People decided that they were going to stop doing those things that were near and dear to them because it was in the best interest of society. So people say, well, people have been shaking hands and visiting their elderly grandparents and taking care of their families in that way for generations, you know, or, or they say they, they say more importantly, they say that racism is generational. And then I point to them and say, well, yes, racism may be generational, but so is shaking hands and hugging grandparents and taking care of your grandkids. If that's not generational, then what is? So here's the decision point, Gary. If, if a, a, an African-American male that's young, say 20 something, that has a, a propensity to have a disdain for law enforcement, decides the next time he's walking down the street and he sees a law enforcement officer coming by to do what he would do if he was greeting a friend on the street. And maybe the most basic thing by smiling and saying, hello, if a person that does not like people of color, see a person of color on the street and they decide in that moment to treat that person of color the same way they would greet a stranger of their same color. Just to, They don't have to love them. They just have to behave in a way that would be accepted in, uh, around people that look like them. It would be better. Listen, I'm not asking people to start loving people, but I'm asking people to decide to love people or to demonstrate love and to behave in, in, a, in, a, in a good man, in a good way. And so at the end of the day, Gary, it's very simple. If you know how to treat one person well, then you know how to treat everybody well, because there's not that much difference between all of us. Just a few upbringing things. And at the end of the day, we can make the decision today. Now, that seems so simple, Gary. We don't need more policies. We don't need more government. We don't need more oversight. We don't need more jails. We don't need any of that stuff around racism. What we need is people to decide it's over. Then I'm no longer going to behave that way. And they have the power to do it. They just demonstrated it with COVID. The question is, will they? Super simple answer. But the question is, how we how do we get there? And that's a much longer discussion. And, and it's one that we'll have to have at another time. Yes. But I want to add to that, that I heard somebody say something similar, and it made me more aware that when I'm out in public, that I tend to just kind of be into myself and not, yes. you know, say hello, not smile. Of course, you smile today and it's behind a mask, but I've, I've made it a conscious effort in the last year to do that exact thing of what you're talking about, Charles. And the response that I'm getting from people is rather fascinating. Yes. You know, if I'm walking down the street now, I'm outside, I don't have a mask on, I just say hello. And people are like, uh, hi, 
<laughs> it's like, yeah, you're kind of crazy, huh? In our neighborhood, we moved into a new neighborhood last year. Wherever you go in our neighborhood, it's an expected practice to wave. Mm, yeah. To say hello yeah, to wave. If you're driving in your car and somebody's walking on the sidewalk, you do not drive by them without right. just waving. And it doesn't matter who it is, whether you know them or not. Right. And it just creates a sense of community. That's right that makes us feel good. And that's why we, we moved here. And I met some of the people that started this neighborhood five years ago and why they did the things that they did to try to create this community. To me, that's leadership. Absolutely. I I love that. I love that uh, so much, Gary. And I I live in a community very similar to that, a much older community. It's been around since the fifties, older homes. Uh, But it's the same way. The community is so bonded. And when you come here, you feel like that you belong to a community and you've got people from all walks of life that live here, but they get along beautifully because they've decided that they're going to treat one another equitably. They've decided they're going to wave when they see their neighbors. They decided that they're going to stop and chat at the corner, at the block, or whatever the case may be. And and we can all do the same thing if if we just will choose to. It's a choice. It's a choice. As leadership, right? It's a choice. (laughs) I'm going to wrap this up like I always wrap it up, Charles. I don't know if I warned you about this, but I always end my podcast with the same question. And we'll go back to the Charles coming out of high school or maybe – in the Air Force, if you could write yourself a letter and send it to Charles when you were in your you know, late teens, early 20s, what would you tell Charles? Yeah, that's, a, that's an easy one, Gary. It's easy because I would tell that kid that nothing said is everything, but everything said is something. Mm-hmm. The encouragement would be that that communication from that counselor that says, that said I wasn't college material, That wasn't everything there could be said about me and who I was. But listening to that person also motivated me. It gave me some information that I used that inspired me and pushed me to do greater things that that person didn't believe I could do. And I never touched base with that person again. But but I know that that motivated me and drove me a good portion of my life. And so I want to realize that no matter how much I know and learn, I don't know everything. And I want to always take the time to listen to views and ideas of all different sorts of people, because what they say is potentially of some value to me or someone else in the world. Yeah, that's great. Good advice for all our listeners, all our leaders. And uh, I want to thank you today, Charles, for this broader discussion on leadership and diversity, inclusion, access, equity. I've just really enjoyed it. I I have a feeling you'll be back. (laughs) Well, I certainly hope so. If you'll have me, this has been an honor for me, Gary. I I love what you do. I love your leadership views and philosophies, and this is amazing. So I really appreciate it. I'm honored to, to be here today. So, Charles, how can people get in touch with you if they want to get a hold of Charles Pulliam? What's the best way to uh, find you? Absolutely. Well, the best way is to to go to our our website. Well, I'll start with my email address. It's charles.pulliam, and that's spelled pull-i-m, P-U-L-L-I-A-M, at solutions.com. Now, solutions is is spelled different because we're different. It's spelled S-O-L-U-S-H-I-E-N-S. Dot com. Charles.polium at solutions.com. And you certainly can go to solutions.com and visit our website there. You can catch us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram as well. Just, just search for solutions. 
Great. We'll we'll put all that into the uh, show notes. So if people want to get a hold of you, they can find you. Awesome. Thank you, Mr. Charles Pulliam, for being brilliant, wise, and very open and vulnerable with us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Gary. I appreciate you and wish you blessings. Thank you. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thank you for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care, be well, and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.